0: James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We just pick up where we left off last week, and I'll do a, I'll do a synopsis in just a moment and catch us up how all of this fits contextually. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing a, the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place. Or you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Let's pray together. May God honor the blessing of the reading of His Word. Father in heaven, as we come this morning and we hear your servant James warn us about wrongly judging people by the way they appear outwardly, God, we're all guilty of doing it. I pray that you would help us to see the wisdom of judging rightly. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to see the value of faith over material riches. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a wonderful story about a Chicago bank that once asked for a letter of recommendation for a young Bostonian being considered for employment with their bank. The Boston Investment House could not say enough about the young man. In their letter, they wrote, his father was a Cabot. His mother was a Lewid. Further back was a happy blend of Stalinist and Peabody's, and other of Boston's first families. His recommendation was given to the Chicago Bank without hesitation and gleaning with the names of the up-and-coming and the wealthy from years gone by. Well, Several days later, the Chicago Bank, without hesitation, replied to the Bostonian investment firm, and they said that you gave us a letter of recommendation that was altogether inadequate. We are not, this is a quote, we are not contemplating using the young man for the purpose of breeding, but for work. How often we misjudge the value of a person. We're guilty of doing it today. I'm guilty of doing it. Listen, when was the last time you were driving down the road and you saw a stretch limo and you said to your kids, look, look, look at the limo. We're all guilty of doing it, of gawking, of taking a peek at somebody who appears to be wealthy. Just a couple of weeks ago, I took my son to a luncheon with the Indianapolis Colts, and we got to sit with James Mungro, and we got to get his autograph, and sitting right next to us was Peyton Manning. It's remarkable that he looked just like any other man, a little bit taller, a little bit of blonde hair, but he was just like every other man. We have a tendency to teach even our children about the rich and the famous, there's whole television programs and newspapers and magazines that are written to keep us updated about the rich and the famous. How we judge a book by its cover. We've become a society that no longer values a person for their morals and their ethics and their faith in God, but we value them by their bank account and the gold on their ring on their fingers and the car that they drive and the square footage of their house or the location of their home or their address. God is not a respecter of persons. He accepts people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And listen to this. He accepts people readily from every socioeconomic group. According to the Apostle Paul, God is not persuaded in his choices by the things that often influence our choices. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he reminded them that God does not choose many wise according to the flesh Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. God does not choose the way that you and I choose. As we enter into James chapter 2, James begins to point out specific areas where the church was stumbling. Remember, let me take you back to chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1 that he talked to us in the very first part of the chapter about having a right understanding about trials. And just because you have a trial doesn't mean that you're out of fellowship with God. It may very well mean that you're in fellowship with God because our wise God brings things into our life to mold us into His image. And then He warns us in verse 9, chapter 1, "...but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position." And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. And the warning there was this. Don't make the mistake of thinking that if you just had more money, you'd have less problems. That's the warning that he gives us in chapter 1. Then as we work our way through the rest of the chapter, we come down to the very last verse where he talks about what pure religion is. And he says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep yourself unstained by the world. And I stressed to you last Sunday night that his intent was not to be taken so literalistic. Well, I don't know any widows or orphans, so I must not have any real religion. Or, I've got to find some widows and orphans in the community to minister to them so I can prove that I have real religion. The emphasis of the verse is that we are to be others-minded. And now listen to this. Who is more socioeconomically repressed than widows and orphans? If not in our day, certainly in James' day. James's day was before women worked. James's day was before women were equally educated and were CEOs of multi-million-dollar companies. In James's day, a woman was provided for entirely by her father or her husband, or she was destitute. Same with orphan children. If they were not provided for, they were destitute. So James is consistently wanting us to get a right view of income and money. And now what he does in chapter 2 is he wants, to, he wants to begin a discussion about the mistake of judging a book by its cover, if I can use that colloquialism. It appears that there were ushers in the church. It's interesting that this morning's testimony was from the ushers. Chris comes and gives a testimony promoting the ministry team of the ushers. And in essence, what James is talking to in our text this morning is he's talking to the ushers. Who else is it that says, who is it that says to someone when they come in, oh yeah, you come with me, let me find you a seat. Who does that? The ushers do that. He's talking specifically to those who are responsible for greeting those that came into the church. And he begins to give them some direction. And the aim is to warn of the folly of walking by sight, not by faith. That's the aim of his text. That's the aim of this sermon. And I want to do it by giving you three warnings about making judgments about people based purely on an external superficial basis. It would do us all some good to hear loud and clear what James has to say because we're all guilty of falling into the same kind of superficial judgment. You ever heard someone say something like this, you've got to come to church with me tonight. Tony Dungy is going to be giving his testimony. Now, I'm not passing any judgment on Tony Dungy. In fact, I've heard that he's a man of great faith. I've heard that he's a man of great character, a genuine Christian. I don't know him personally. I can't vouch for that. I'm just telling you what I've heard and read. But when we say things like that, you've got to come to church with me tonight because, and we fill in the blank. Remember this big craze that was going through Memphis whenever... The, the WWF wrestler, The Undertaker, was coming around and giving his testimony. You gotta come to First Baptist Church, Bolivar, Tennessee, because The Undertaker is gonna give his testimony. As if to say, anybody else who's ever given a testimony about conversion of Christ is not nearly as important as this rich, as this rich man who everybody knows when he gives his testimony. Or, you've got to come to church tonight and hear because there's going to be a beauty queen who's going to give her testimony in Christ. Or there's going to be some great preacher who's going to give a testimony in Christ or preach the Word. As if to say that this Lord's table and this baptism and this Word rightly administered and understood is not sufficient and just as glorious. We've got to be careful that we don't elevate people beyond the level in which they're to be elevated because that's exactly what the church was doing in James' day. He gives us three warnings. First, in verse 4, James says that making judgments about a person purely on the basis of their appearance or reputation is a superficial compromise. Look at what he says in verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Superficial compromise. These were the days of poverty for the church in which wealth was indicated by the sight of a mere gold ring and some fine clothes. The church didn't have enough chairs for all the congregation to sit in, obviously, because he says that you say to one person, you sit here, while you say to another one, you stand here, or you sit on the ground at my feet. Obviously, they were lacking some of the needs that they had for the size of the crowds that they had. Poverty not a safe place for a Christian to be, is it? It brings its own troubles, just like wealth brings other trials. Poverty brought temptation to the life of the early church. Here's some of the temptations that poverty brought to this superficial compromise. First, he was brought by the sight of wealth. The temptation of the sight of wealth. They quivered in excitement as they saw a wealthy man strolling up to the meeting. Can you imagine one of our ushers at the back door? And here comes somebody who owns some large business in, America, in Newcastle. Here comes Mr. Metal if there is such a man. Here comes Lee Iacocca, you know, when he was the CEO. Or here comes Mr. Meyer from Meyer Furniture. Whoever it is, I don't even know if these men genuinely exist. But here comes somebody from the community who's wealthy. Here comes the most prestigious surgeon in the community. We know that he makes lots of money. When he comes in, we go out of our way to make sure that he's welcome. Oh, we're very, very glad to see you, dear sir. The superficial compromise at the site of wealth. I find it interesting that James never describes followers of the Lord Jesus Christ purely as being rich and always as accompanied by rich in something, never just as rich. For him, this term by itself was a moral category. It does not mean for James being comfortably well-off, but rather luxurious, plush, ostentatious, or ritzy. It's Mr. Moneybags coming to their little church. And boy, if we could just get him to join our church, wouldn't everything be good? We had a Mr. Moneybags in our church in Tennessee, and what I found was he didn't give any more than anybody else gave. That's what I found. What I found was that he would cry and complain, and he would talk about how his children had milked him from hundreds of thousands of dollars. But when there were little projects to be done around the church, he would give, but he would give proportionally to what everybody else gave. He wasn't the answer to all of our problems. Some people thought that he would be. Oh, Mr. Moneybags is a member of the church. He'll give. Oftentimes, God doesn't send Mr. Moneybags because if Mr. Moneybags was here and he gave, you wouldn't. God is more glorified when a bunch of little people give from what they have and have not to get his work done than he is when one big fish gives it all. It's It's a greater glory to God when those who seemingly have nothing raise the money from nowhere. Why is that? Because that's the way God does business. God uses the insignificant of the world. God uses the weak of the world to shame the strong. He uses those which seem to be insignificant and uneducated to shame the wise. That's the way God does things. He was shown to a good seat, this Mr. Moneybags. He was offered to sit in the shade or in the breeze. We know that the wealthy people as well as the poor were drawn to the church. That was, for example, a Roman centurion in Luke chapter seven who actually paid for the building of a new synagogue. Oh how we get trapped into this idea that if we can just get Mr. Moneybags to join the church. And listen, the church is not the church is not uh they're not um, they're not they're not uh we've not gotten so far beyond this this kind of mentality that we that we no longer struggle with it a large prominent Baptist church in Texas announced that their 10,000th member would be welcomed to the church next week. Not 10,001, the little old lady who had no money, but the 10,000th member. And see, it's kind of interesting that he was the kicker of the Dallas Cowboys. In his book, The Practical Christian, Gordon Keedy writes, A church in Pittsburgh advertised the personal appearance one Lord's Day of a famous star of the Cleveland Browns. A former Miss America travels the circuit of certain charismatic churches and her very glamorous portrait is featured that Sunday in the newspaper advertising and inviting people to attend these churches. Come to church, in other words, to hobnob with the great and bask in their reflected glory. The use of such attractions, not excluding the periodic ministrations of the, of the corrupt crop of celebrity preachers without whom some people seem to believe effective ministry would vanish from the face of the earth, cannot shake off the taint of undue respect for persons, he writes. How we've become a society that is so prone to say, oh, you ought to come and here, this person because, boy, if they say it, it must be true. If the Bible says it, it's true. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. If the Bible says it, it's true and that settles it, period. A second temptation for those that are falling into this first warning is is to be repulsed by the sight of poverty, Sometimes we look upon the impoverished person and we think that their base condition is entirely their own fault. We had a man in our church in Tennessee as well who was very hard toward the poor. He would say things like this, I was raised poor, but look where I'm at today. And he was a millionaire. No doubt he was a millionaire. But see, his attitude was this, everyone that's poor is poor because they're lazy. Everyone that's poor is poor because they won't work. There certainly are lazy people who won't work that are poor. But not every poor person is a lazy person that won't work. Listen, sometimes circumstances are such that God has drawn the lot for them that they'll not have much. You better be careful looking at somebody who has less than you and say they have less than you because they don't work as hard as you. You have what you've got because of the grace of God. Or let me say this, you may have what you've got because of the judgment of God. My Bible says that God gives some sinners over to their wanton lust. Some men are wealthy because that's all they lust after. and That's all they lust after and God gives them over to their lust. There are a whole lot more millionaires today who have nothing to do with God than there are those who are poor who love God with all they've got, no matter how little or much it may be. James is telling us this morning in this text that we better be careful about judging a book by its cover. James is James is warning us of this superficial, worldly judgmentalism. Be careful, those of us who who are very well off, who are fairly well off. Just because the circumstances have gone our way, it could just as easily go the other way. A second warning that James is concerned about is the nature of the kind of superficial judgment. It's not just the warning of superficial judgment, it's to understand what this superficial judgment is. And he calls it for what it is. It's sin. When we judge a book by its cover, when we judge a man by his clothes, it's purely sin. And James gives us three ways that superficial judgmentalism is sin. First, he says in verse one, it's the sin of favoritism. Notice what he says. My brethren, do not hold your faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. That's what he says. Superficial judgmentalism is the sin of favoritism. Favoritism literally means you received the face of someone. That's what it means. That is, you were captivated by someone's appearance or social status. Or when I was a young man, I used to love... I used to love, that's too strong of a word. When I was a young man, I used to admire the beauty of many celebrities. I used to look upon some of the women who were on television and think to myself, wow, the man that marries her is a lucky man. I'm embarrassed to say to you that I used to just love share. Cher. I'd look at Cher and I'd think to myself, wow, what a woman. I've got to be honest with you, as I've grown in Christ, I look at Cher and I'm repulsed. When I was a young man, I used to look at some of the women who, who are movie actresses and famous celebrities and I used to think to myself, boy, aren't they beautiful. I look at some of the women today who I think that externally are beautiful, but I think that internally they're absolutely horrifically ugly. The Bible is true, isn't it? The Bible is true. Better is a gold ring in a pig's snout than a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. I've been having my son memorize that text. I want him to learn it early. It'll save him a lot of heartache. Don't judge a woman by her external beauty. Beauty's only skin deep. Randy Travis had a song about that once, didn't he? Talked about how your hair is going to fade, but he said, I ain't in love with your hair. You know what? Beauty comes and goes, but who you are remains steadfast. Be careful about making this external judgment of favoritism. How such attitudes are deplored in the Bible. God is not like this. Moses, speaking about God, said, The Lord your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. No one comes to God and says to God, Hey, listen, God, you ought to have me in your choir, because I'll tell you what, I can really sing. No one comes to God and says to God, Hey God, you ought to make me a Christian because look how wealthy I am. No one comes to God and says to God, God, you ought to save me and make me one of the followers of Christ because look how much I've got to offer. You see, God does His best work with the broken vessel. God does His best work with the humble who dares not even raise up his eyes to heaven but beats his breast and says, Forgive me, a sinner and worthy to be in your presence. Not with the person who tells God how much they've got to offer. Jesus, Jesus didn't butter up the leaders of his day, did he? He wasn't intimidated by their wealth and power. Did he have a group of favorites that could do nothing wrong in his eyes? Even the spies who were sent to catch Jesus in his words, they said of him correctly, we know that you do not show partiality. Or Matthew's account, you aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. There was no hint of snobbiness in Jesus. And there should not be in us. Superficial judgmentalism is sin because it's favoritism. But it's also sin because it's discrimination. Look in verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives, James writes? That's discrimination. They were making distinctions, distinctions between worshipers and assigning seats according to perceived worth. A few months ago, I was reading some blogs on the internet of a church growth website. I'm telling you, I could not believe what I read. I backed up and read it again. Sometimes I have a tendency to skim when I read. And all of a sudden, I'm reading this sentence that when you never had that time when you're reading a sentence and you go, hold on, hold on a minute, stop the presses. I've got to back up, make sure I'm understanding this right. You ever have that happen to you? Happened to me that afternoon. I was in my office and I was reading this thing. And all of a sudden it was like, hold on, time out, got to go back to the very beginning to make sure I'm getting this right, because this certainly can't be the case. It was a story of a mega non-denominational church in Houston, Texas, and somewhere along the lines, somebody in their infinite wisdom had decided that, just like with the sporting activities, the members that come to the church should be assigned seating according to the generosity of their giving. I'm not kidding you. They put in a couple of rows. The first two rows all across the front were actually padded reclining chairs that had a footrest, an armrest, and a little holder for your coffee. They were color-coded. Behind them were more padded seats, but not quite as luxurious. And as far as you go and you go, I guess till you get to the very back where it's hard plastic. I don't know, maybe taxing them. In the very top of the church, they had taken the balcony and redesigned the whole balcony to be skyboxes. For the most luxurious givers in the church could go and sit in the skybox, have closed-circuit TV of the worship service, and a hot bar. They could sit on couches and watch the service even though they were there live for it and be served food and drink. An interview was given of the senior pastor and this is what he said. He said, listen, the church is competing with corporations like the Houston Rockets and the Dallas Cowboys. If we want to stay competitive, we've got to give them what they expect. Do you know what's absolutely most astonishing about the story? They said that their giving had gone up thirty percent since they instituted it. Isn't that sad? Somebody was motivated to give more to the kingdom work so they could sit in the reclining chair. I wonder what they do when they come to this text in James. The kind of activity, no matter the level, is sinful. When we're giving, when we're giving purely for the purpose that we can be recognized, it's sinful. Within the church, social and radical distinctions are not to exist. We're not to make these distinctions based upon what the haves and the have-nots. Paul's declaration to the Galatians, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And again, he said to the Colossians, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythinian. There are not to be these distinctions based upon socioeconomic class. I have to be honest with you. I have a little pet peeve about churches that have got a parking spot in the front for the pastor. You know what a parking spot for the pastor ought to be? If he's going to have a parking spot labeled, it ought to be the one that's the furthest from the building. Unless he's handicapped, he ought to be leading the way as a servant. That's where it ought to be. And then right next to that should be the elders and the deacons and the Sunday school teachers leading the way by taking the least desirable spots. That's where it ought to be. The church's boast all have the same privileges in Christ is what the church's boast should be to come boldly into the presence of God and to look into the face and cry, Abba, Father, we are on equal ground at the cross. A slave could be an elder in the right church. Jewish Christians could sit at the feet of the Synthenian pastor and be edified week by week. The wealthiest man in town, if he was in Christ, would sit at the Lord's table and break a piece of bread from the same loaf as his own slave's. And people would look upon it in astonishment and say, how can it be? And the reply would be, we are one in Christ. So the first way that this judgmentalism is sin is that it's favoritism. Second, it's discrimination. Third, it's an insult to the poor. Verse 6, James says, you've dishonored the poor man. Can you imagine these two poor Christians walking home after the church service, talking about the services, and one turns to the other and asks, so what did you get out of the worship service this morning? Well, I got an insult. What do you mean you got an insult? Well, I got to church early. I was sitting on the pew, reading my Bible, preparing for worship. And the building began to fill up quickly. And the next thing I knew, the building was full and an usher came up and he had Mr. Moneybags right behind him. And he looked at me and he said, excuse me, Mr. Poor Man, could you go and stand in the back? Mr. Moneybags is here. We'd like for him to have a special seat up front. My goodness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that this kind of stuff was taking place. The rich were getting to church early, having a feast and getting drunk. The poor showed up and were starving and there wasn't even anything left for their Lord's Supper meal. What a warning that we're given this morning. The third warning is this. We're not to lose sight of reality. Be careful of superficial judgmentalism because it's sin. And thirdly, don't lose sight of reality. Reality. I've been teaching about worry on Wednesday nights for some time the last couple of weeks and one of the things that I said was put your problems in perspective. Keep things in perspective to do battle with worry. And I'm a worrier, so I'm preaching to myself. This morning we come to the third point that James is making, the third warning. And his warning is don't lose sight of reality. Let me give you a little reality. Let's characterize the wealthy man and then let's characterize the poor man. Number one, the wealthy man. The wealthy are often guilty of exploiting the poor. Look at verse 6. Excuse me. Is it not the rich who oppress you? That's what he says. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Listen, I'm going to tell you now, if Mr. BP was to come to church today, I'm sure that many of you would have something to say to him, wouldn't you? If Mr. Exxon was to be in church this morning, I bet he would have plenty of conversation, wouldn't he? I bet if Mr. Swifty Gas was to show up, we'd want to talk to him about his refineries, wouldn't we? You know what he says? It's the rich who oppress you. Now listen, I don't know what all the ins and outs are of this oil stuff, but I know this. I don't believe that the prices need to be where they are. When BP posts a 35% gain for last quarter, you can't tell me that they got to jack it up to 280 a gallon so they're not going to lose money. You know what? If we're going to all join together and we're going to buckle down and take a hit, then let's do that. Let's all join together and buckle down and take a hit. See, oftentimes the rich man is oppressive. I find it interesting that the other day, George told me that the cement company called him and said, hey, listen, because of the price of gas, we're going to have to raise how much, much cement is per yard. You know what I would have asked the man if I'd have been on the phone? I'd have said, okay, I understand that. But in a year from now, or nine months from now, or 18 months from now, if gas drops fifty a gallon, are then you going to drop your prices for cement per yard? See how the rich work? The rich are often oppressive. Look at chapter 5 verse 4 where James describes the rich again and he talks about this whole issue of money. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which was been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. He's speaking about the rich who don't even pay their laborers. Basically, James is talking about how you can be, how can you be so excited to see the man who does not pay his laborers come to church? That's what he's saying. We have a tendency to lose focus, to lose sight of reality. The guy who doesn't pay his bills shows up to church. If he doesn't pay his laborers, what makes you think he's going to be generous with his money in a church? I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of it. I saw on the news the other day where some rich oil man out in Texas spent $45,000 rescuing a couple hundred animals from Louisiana. Now I'm not against rescuing animals from Louisiana. The Bible says the righteous man cares for the soul of his animal. He cares for his animal. I love my dog. I love my cat. You know, I'm not opposed to that, okay? But I thought to myself, man, if he spent $45,000, just wrote a check to rescue these dogs and cats, I wonder what he does in his church. And I bet what he does in it, I don't know him, but I know that the tendency is amongst the wealthy, I bet what he does in his church is gives all kinds of excuses why he doesn't need to give to that. That does not get his name in the press. Didn't get any headlines for giving secretly to the finance ministry team. Right? The world is full of unscrupulous businessmen and landlords who are grinding the poor down, down, down. Africa, Asia, South America, China. They're all full of such men. And should they profess to be Christians and not change their lives, they will destroy the credibility of the gospel. Keep in perspective who the wealthy are. They exploit the poor. Secondly, in the second half of verse 6, James says that the wealthy drag the poor into court. They drag them into court. Now, what does he mean by they drag them into court? Why, why would the wealthy have an opportunity to drag the poor into court? Well, think about it. Who do the poor borrow their money from? The wealthy. What happens whenever the poor have circumstances that they can't pay the money back? What do the wealthy do? They drag them into court. You ever heard of a slumlord? You know what he does? A slumlord takes his house and he sells it to you. And he's a nice guy. He's going to finance it himself. All you've got to do is give him a couple thousand dollars down and then have your financing in line in 12 months and bing-a-bang-a-boom, boom you got it. But see, the problem is this. If you could get your financing in line in 12 months, you could get it in line right now and you wouldn't need him and he knows that. So what he does is he takes your down payment, you pay for 12 months, you can't come up with the rest, so then he comes and takes his little contract and throws you out. And he can do it legally, see? He puts you out. Then he comes to the next person who has the dream of owning a home. And he says, I'll tell you what, for a couple thousand dollars. And before you know it, in just a few years, he's tripled, quadrupled five times the amount on the property that he has. How about this? True story from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Jackson, Mississippi. The pastor writes that a friend of his became the pastor of a church in another small delta town. The church was in the pocket of a local landowner. During his first year in that town, he uncovered a terrible record of economic oppression which had made the farmer rich. He was a cotton farmer. The pastor got increasingly indignant at all he'd heard. And so one Sunday morning, he preached a fearless sermon on Christian honesty. On Monday morning, the landowner called to see the pastor. He told him how much his ministry was helping him and his family. In fact, he said, it's helped me so much that I want to give you this check of a sizable amount as a gift. The pastor was very touched. That was the exact sum of money that he owed the bank. I wonder how the farmer knew. He thanked the man warmly. His eyes were filled with tears. Just as the cotton planter was leaving, he turned at the door and he said to the preacher, Oh, by the way, I assume you've preached your last sermon like the one you preached yesterday. We don't need that kind of preaching in our church. Without a moment's hesitation, the pastor took the check from his pocket and tore it in half and dropped it into the wastebasket. But unfortunately, it was his last sermon that he preached because he trumped up charges and got the man fired. Be careful about who it is that you idolize and think. If they would just come in, they could fix all of our problems. In verse 7, James gives us a third description of the wealthy. He slanders the Lord's name, James says. You and I sing. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. We sing about the name of Jesus. We talk about the name of Jesus. We protect the name of Jesus like the name of Jesus is our own wife. We protect that name. And then there are those that are out there that blaspheme that name. And we befriend them. You know what? Don't buy into this this ideology that, that the world is trying to sell you. That if you're a Christian, you can't ever get angry. If you're a Christian, you can't ever tell somebody they're wrong. If you're a Christian, you can't ever set somebody straight. You know what? It's never wrong to set somebody straight for the cause of God and His name. It's almost always wrong to do it for your own namesake and your own cause. It's hardly ever wrong to do it for the cause of Christ. We should be jealous for the name of Christ. He tells us a good deal about the rich man. But let me finish by talking a little bit about the poor man. In verse 5, James says that God has chosen the poor man. Do you see that? He says, listen, my beloved brethren, did God did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich? Notice that I said he never describes Christians purely in the terms of rich. He doesn't say he's rich. He says he's rich in faith. You see? He gives a description of it. He chose us in Christ. What does that mean? Election is not nearly as complicated as some would like to make it. My Bible says that Jesus cho- or God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Ephesians one four. Jesus said to the disciples, "You didn't choose me, but I chose you." In John fifteen sixteen. Election is a very simple concept. David goes down to the brook and he chooses five smooth stones. There is a choice out of a certain con- constituency, which implies the non-choice of those that are left. God chooses a great company more than any man can number. God chooses the people as numerous as the sands of the seashore. God chooses. It is God's saving choice. Sinners are dead in sin and rebels against Him. And left to themselves, they would never choose Christ. Not one single sinner deserves to be chosen, but God is merciful to multitudes. So what kind of people does He choose? Not many rich, not many mighty, not many powerful, but the poor, ordinary people like you and me. God chooses the poor people of the world to shame the rich. Think about Moses, the son of a slave. Think about Amos, a herdsman, Zwingli, an alpine shepherd. Luther's father was a miner. Carry was a shoe cobbler in England. How many among the upper class do we see today that are Christians? I'll tell you, it's not many. Who wants to be a Hilton? Not me. I want to be a Christian. We learn some other interesting aspects about the poor. The second characteristic of the poor man is that James says that poor, that the poor belong to God. Look at verse 7. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? The fair name by whom which you are owned, the poor belong to God. How can you love God and not love His children? It is, it, is, it, is, it is absolutely ludicrous for us to look at a person and think that just because they lack material possessions that we do not need to love them. If they're God's children, then they're brothers and sisters in Christ. The third characteristic of the poor man is that he loves God. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Rich in faith. They love God. That's the greatest compliment that anyone can give to you. The greatest compliment that someone can give to you is not you're a good worker, not you're intelligent, not you're good looking, not that you're wealthy. None of those things. The greatest compliment that a person can say about you is this. I don't know much about them, but I know this. They love God. They're rich in faith. The fourth characteristic of the poor man is that he's rich in his faith. Rich in faith. How different God's standard of measure is from our standard. I remember what God told Samuel when he went looking for Saul's replacement. Do you remember that? Samuel went to Jesse's table and he just knew it was the oldest son, but it wasn't him. So on down the line he went. He got through what he thought were all of the sons, and in essence threw his hands up and said, What am I doing here? All right only am free, I give up God, what's the deal? And what's God say to Samuel? Do not look at his appearance or his height, of his stature, because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's how we should judge. What is a man's heart? Does he love God? Doesn't matter how talented he is. You know what? Mark would like to step down from leading worship at Memorial Baptist Church. He said it since I've been here for three years. He said to me, I do it because there's a need and I can and I have. But he said to me when I came here, if we find the right person to step into that position, I'm ready and willing right now to step down. You know what? There's been a couple of men that have come through those doors and sit in this church because they've known that. They've known that there's a possibility that they could be the worship leader at Memorial Baptist Church. But I'm going to tell you something. It's not how pretty you sing or how much music that you know that firstly qualifies you to stand up here and worship and lead us in worship. It is your theology and the practicality of how you live it out in your life. We're not going to have somebody who's gifted, who can sing well, but who's as theologically as thick as cellophane to come and lead us in our worship, how can they lead you to worship a God whom they barely know? Just because they can sing. I'll tell you this, I don't want the job, but I'll take the job before we give it to someone like that. And trust me, if you're not praying for one now, you will be then. We need to be looking for God's man. No matter what we do, we have a tendency to just take a warm body to fill a position. We need a Sunday school teacher. So and so wants to do it, but they're not faithful. They're not sound. They're a gossip. They don't even come to church regularly. Yeah, but they want the job. Maybe they'll come with, no, that ain't how you do it. That ain't how you do it. You know what? If God doesn't provide the workers, He doesn't want the ministry. See, oftentimes we think that we gotta just get someone to fill the job because we gotta do this ministry. Hey, if God hadn't ordered the plate, he ain't gonna pay the bill. Sometimes we've got to back up and say, wait a minute, maybe what God wants us to do is combine or streamline or do less. See, it's better to do less great than a lot good. In fact, my motto is let's do better, let's do less better. Let's do less better. Let's have less meetings, but good meetings. Let's have less ministry teams, but good ministry teams. Let's have less people in leadership, but good people, great people who love God in leadership. And that's the poor man that James is talking about here. Finally, the poor man has a glorious inheritance waiting on him. The moment that his life is over. That's what James says in chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? The Bible says that those who have faith in Christ are, not will be, are seated with Christ in heavenly places in Ephesians 2.6 right now. Oh, I pray that this text impacts the way that we look at those who enter the doors of the house of worship. We shouldn't be looking to see what they're driving or what they're wearing or where they work. What we need to be looking to see if they're regenerate is do they love God? And if they don't love God, then we shouldn't be looking to see what they're going to give or do, but we should be looking to see if we can introduce them to Christ through His Word. The greatest compliment that anyone can pay to any one of us is not that we're good businessmen or good businesswomen. Not that we're nice or kind or giving or caring. Those are all nice. Those are all good. I like all those things. But the greatest compliment that any of us can give or receive is that we're godly. We love God. We're not a respecter of persons. We see everybody at equal ground at the foot of the cross. What we need at Memorial Baptist Church is a congregation full of people who love God. And you know what? We can leave the money to seal the parking lot up to God. And we can leave the money to remodel the meeting room over at the Weller house up to God. Because God doesn't order anything that He doesn't pay for. What we need to strive for and pray for is God to send men and women here who already love Him or who are going to love Him because we disciple them too. Not those who have fat checkbooks and look like the wealthy on the outside. I pray that what God will do is to give us eyes to see rightly with so that we're not guilty of superficial judgmentalism based upon the trinkets of Vanity Fair.